Health. We are starting, though, taking a look at the latest proposal when it comes to a property tax increase in the city of Vancouver, a draft budget showing the taxes could go up by about 9.7%. And joining us now to talk more about this number is Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Kirby-Young, thanks so much for taking some time. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, people, especially I would imagine homeowners in Vancouver, will hear this number and notice that it is a lot bigger than the first version or an earlier version of the draft budget. So how can you justify the 9.7% proposal for the property tax hike? Well, let me provide some context on the draft budget that was released yesterday by city staff. Um, and that is that uh, coming into this new term, our team have inherited an an empty and a gutted reserve. In fact, our general stabilization reserve is in the negative. Uh, we have a half billion dollar infrastructure deficit and we have years of underfunding uh, services that the city uh, absolutely has to deliver, uh, like police and fire um, and services that most importantly really matter to residents. So that's some uh, context. And I think that what you're beginning to see with other municipalities around the region and in fact, indeed around the province, that there are significant pressures on city budgets. We're seeing the impacts of rising inflation, um, increase in wages and labor costs, and Vancouver, um, unfortunately, is not alone in facing these challenges. Has a lot changed, though, since when looking at the draft budget from not too, too long ago in November of 2022, the idea putting the number that was put forward, it looked as though the number was about a 5% hike in property taxes. And again, for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned. So how did we go from 5% to 9.7? Well, I believe that the uh, initial draft that uh, staff brought forward was actually coming in at closer to 7%. Um, but as I said, what we're seeing is those um, additional anticipated increases in labor and wage costs. Labor, I should say, and wage labor and wage costs. There we go, um, which is something that uh, is not unique to Vancouver. And again, those are costs that uh, the city doesn't. They're not um, sort of flexible. They're not costs that the city um, can sort of mitigate or can manage. Um, and we're seeing that happening um, with respect to the increasing inflation. So. Um, I think when the budget was cast back in the day, it was originally crafted uh, last summer that direction was given to try to keep it at 5%, but obviously we've seen rampant inflation happening since that time. Has anyone gone through the budget, though, and done a line-by-line analysis of this budget to see if there are places where other costs could maybe be saved rather than going the route of of all of going with this big of a property tax hike? Uh, are there other places, do you think, where there could be savings found? Well, I, I think that uh, this is a particularly tough year, and hopefully this is a year where we're starting to reinvest in those services that, as I said, really do matter to residents. Um, you'll see us taking a number of decisions around where we think we can still deliver meaningful outcomes, um, but with more cost savings. So, for example, I would point to the renter's office decision recently where we're able to um, support nonprofits that really have um, deep expertise in doing that work without the city having to deliver it. Um, and we're able to fund some of that work through providing city space at nominal cost um, through using the empty homes tax to help advance uh, setting up space and tenant improvements to them or advancing grants for them to support that work. And that doesn't hit directly the tax dollars for residents. So, um, of course, we're going to be looking at that. Um, it's a deep and it's a complex budget. This is not final at this stage. This is one that is proposed and council's going to spend its due time and due diligence considering it before we make those final decisions on March 7th.
Are there things in the budget that that you can think of or that you're aware of, though? And we've talked about this before, that really aren't the jurisdiction of the city, whether it's uh, bigger picture climate change initiatives, uh, whether it's other items that really don't fall to the city's jurisdiction that maybe the city shouldn't be spending money on? Yeah, I think we're really going to focus on outcomes. One of the things that are, uh, for example, in our climate spending, um, a huge portion of our capital budget is all about climate spending. Uh, every infrastructure renewal that we do, such as the new aquatic center, everything is built uh, to green and environmental standards. As we're separating our aging sewer infrastructure to avoid combined sewer overflows. Um, those are really expensive and significant projects. We're ensuring that we build in more green features that capture rainfall, that reduce the pressure on the system. Um, so I think it's really about taking a different lens and a different view um, around how the city can support goals and initiatives like climate. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's one example that I would really point to. And the uh, promise of the 100 mental health nurses and 100 new police officers, how does that play into this budget? As we know, the police budget is a big portion of where this money goes. But that specific promise from now Mayor Ken Sim, how does that play in as far as costs and how that is a part of this proposed 9.7% increase? So that is included, that commitment towards advancing the hiring of the police officers in conjunction with the mental health nurses. Um, so that's included in the draft 9.7% budget that staff have brought forward. Um, that work um, and those recommendations really came from a number of experts from Coastal Health and the police department. Um, and we took their advice because clearly that's one of the biggest issues that we are seeing playing out on our streets and in our communities in Vancouver. And we felt that we needed to address that. Um, and that is um, the way that we're hearing from an evidence outcome-based solution is the best way to work at that intersection of policing and social services to get people um, into a better place, to get them into support and recovery, to hopefully um, avoid them escalating um, and help um, reduce the impact on those police calls. Because right now we've got, whether it's police or fire, they're simply in um, triaging mode where they're responding to so many calls on the streets, and that's putting pressure um, on our personnel and also on our budget. So we're working to reduce the root causes of those issues. If we can stop people from escalating, if we can keep them stabilized, if we can get them into services, then that will help us in terms of the impact on those core city services. And when you talk about inflation, uh, wages, labor, and the cost of everything going up, I think that doesn't come as a huge surprise to people. But for residents, everything they're paying for as well is going up. So when you look at the past few years, and I think the numbers were, if we look at the increase in 2020 and 2021, uh, we saw a 6.3% increase, a 7% increase. Now with this proposal of a 9.7, people are going to look at that and say, well, hold on a second. And our, our wages haven't gone up that much. Our salaries haven't gone up that much. Everything costs more. How are people going to afford this? Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge concern um, around affordability. It's one of the reasons that we don't support policy that doesn't achieve outcomes. It's why we scrap the cup fee, for example. So, um, you know, if people are buying coffee two-thirds of the days out of the year. Um, that will go some way towards potential tax savings. It's those kinds of things that will help to mitigate some of the impacts. Um, but I will say, again, we're going to focus really on what we heard from residents, that is that they want to see, they want to feel like they're getting value for the taxes that they're paying, and they want to feel like the money is being spent in the right places. Um, and that's what we're really going to try to focus on.
Uh, do you think there's any chance, again, this is the draft budget, like you mentioned, the vote taking place on March 7th. So is this, uh, do you think homeowners should be bracing that the number is going to be around or exactly at 9.7 or is there a chance it will be something different? Well, as I said, it's a draft budget. It was just released uh, and posted yesterday. So council are doing our due diligence and going through it. Um, and we're going to be very uh, aware of the how difficult it is out there and the level of affordability and the challenges in our city when we're making these decisions. Um, but we're going to try to um, right the ship. We had years of not just underfunding of services, but artificially low tax increases. I think if you date back to 2010, they're averaging about 2% a year, and yet wages were rising higher and faster. And that's why you've seen sort of that lack of investment in things like cleaning public spaces and horticulture and not uh, right-sizing your fire service and all of those outcomes. So there's a lot of work to do to pull this back. And uh, we're we're starting off strong, um, but it's going to take some time to right the ship. All right. Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Always happy to join. is Wednesday afternoon. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell, the founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. I am going to preface this for those who listened on Sunday morning to my regular segment with Sterling. I might sound a little bit better than I did then, but <laughs> if I slur a little bit, Jill, it's because I had gum surgery. Um, oh, no. on. Yeah, you know when they do gum grafting and I had 10 teeth done at once, so Eey. it's pretty sore. Um, and so if I'm slurring, it is not for any other reason than that. <laughs> All right. Well, you sound great uh, <laughs> right you. now. So so uh, good on you for uh, continuing to go. That sounds pretty, pretty major. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's get as far as we can, though. And uh, this is something we actually talked about with a security expert on the show yesterday. And this is about Air Canada and their digital identification technology. Yeah, super cool technology. Um, and actually, in the notes that I sent you about this, um, you'll notice that Frankfurt Airport is actually using right across their entire um, all of their terminals starting in spring of this year. In Canada, we're just getting this, and Air Canada has announced, they announced it yesterday, and that's likely why you had someone on, that they're going to be using digital identification technology to use facial recognition. Um, it'll just be a really slow start. So it's going to um, going to start here in Vancouver. So it's it's really cool for those who want to try it. I'm a huge supporter of it. Here in Vancouver, it will just be for customers departing from Vancouver International Airport and when boarding to select flights to Winnipeg. So just a one, one, uh, one flight only, and it will only be for certain ones of those. And anyone who's eligible, um, they can, they'll be notified via an email and then the directions on how to actually go about the process. I've tried it myself. You do it through their app and it's really easy. You scan your face. I know a lot of people might not like to do this. It's totally optional if you want to, to do this. Um, and it's not part of or any, you know, it's not related at all to the government sponsored programs like Nexus or Global Entry or um, the U.S. Uh, CBP mobile passport control. If you're um, doing your pre-declaration before you go into U.S. Customs, all of those use this type of technology. I am a big believer that it's coming. We already see Frankfurt Airport using it right across the board. Um, so I'll be an early adopter of this, but I think it's great technology. I think it'll be rolled out uh, quicker than we think uh, moving forward. 
All right. And I think you're right. And I think uh, people too, if you've used Nexus or any of those other programs, uh, it's uh, you're used to kind of uh, scanning and doing things and you see how much it really does streamline your processing through the airport. Yeah. I mean, for those who may not un- realize in Frankfurt for what they're, the, the way that they are using it, it will allow travelers to pass through every single stage of the airport journey simply by scanning their face. That is, I mean, that's so cool. You don't have to hold your boarding pass. You don't have to hold your passport. It's just, boom, you're, you're through if you just scan your face. <laughs> so I think it'll, uh, I think moving forward, travel is back. I mean, we knew that a while ago when we saw all of the lineups and the bags, you know, that were misplaced and all the chaos of last summer when it really started to take off. And airports and airlines want to do whatever they can to reduce the amount of time that people have to interact with gate agents and ticket agents and all of that um, through the airport process. So I think that this is, it's, it's coming and I, and I really think it will be adopted quickly. All right. So we'll see uh, what happens and people that take part in it while it is the pilot project for sure. Uh, You're also talking today or we're looking at a subsidy. This is for the WestJet Minneapolis route, but this is coming from the Saskatchewan government. Yeah, really interesting. I haven't heard of this type of thing before. Who knows? It may be behind the scenes, but um, Saskatchewan was really upset when Air Canada uh, pulled flights because they're moving not you know, they're shifting kind of toward the east. They're still a national carrier, but WestJet's really focusing on the west and Air Canada more so in the east. Everyone's just trying to find their place right now with all of these new carriers that are coming and doing um, domestic flights like Flair and Swoop and Canada Jetlines and Lynx and Porter, all airlines that really weren't big players prior to the pandemic. And, you know, the big carriers, that affects their bottom line. And so they've been juggling. And when Air Canada pulled out of Saskatoon to Calgary, there was huge backlash. And now WestJet, um, they, they have this flight. It'll be between Saskatoon and Minneapolis. It's launching in June, but it will be with financial support of the province's government. They're going to put um, basically a guarantee that the minimum revenue guarantee of up to $2.2 million dollars um, that's what the Saskatchewan's Minister of Trade and Export Development has agreed to. So, you know, they obviously are hurting because routes are being changed and dropped from their province. So this is interesting to see that the government has stepped up to support it. Yeah, very interesting. And like you said, not something we've really seen happen before. So a very interesting story for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else, what's happening with Flair Airlines? Yeah, they've announced a new service between Windsor, Ontario and Vancouver, and that's going to begin on June the 10th. So it will be twice a week, Wednesdays and Saturdays. And I I tried to look online myself, their website you just go to if you want to check this out. So obviously there's not going to be very many uh, seats at this rate, but according to Flair, they have limited introductory one-way fares for that route, which is across the country, Jill, mm-hmm. beginning at $49, taxes and fees included. What the heck? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, huh. Across the country. like you, They can't sustain that. They probably have like two seats on, on certain flights <laughs> for that rate. But And if you want to dig for them, um, that's one heck of a deal if they have them yeah. <laughs> still left. Absolutely. All right, people, I'm sure we'll be looking for that and trying to get that deal. Uh, this is an interesting one as well. We've done plenty of stories here with people who have arrived places and had their wheelchairs damaged, uh, talking about places that are accessible as well. This is a new report that takes a look at accessibility and tourism. 
Yeah, I thought this was such an interesting report. It's why I wanted to talk about it today, because an estimated 1 billion people around the world are living with some form of disability. Um, so accessibility is really important, especially for tourism, because um, it has been quite behind the times. And there's a new report that was done by an organization called Valuable 500, and it's revealed the most accessible cities in the world. And I wanted um, to share those top 10 cities because this was nominated by 3,500 people with disabilities. They are the ones who know. And so the top 10 cities were Amsterdam, Las Vegas, London, New York, Orlando, Paris, Shanghai, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo. So um, you know what? Kudos to those cities for, for making it easier for people uh, with both visible and invisible disabilities. Yeah, definitely. That was a very, very interesting report. Uh, we also uh, have a new story as well. I think there are some times when maybe parents wouldn't be so upset if their children weren't sitting right beside them on the plane, but <laughs> yeah. maybe you want your kids, you want your whole family together, and United Airlines is addressing that. Yeah, this was a, this was a breakthrough, and it was a very hot topic. And even um, Joe Biden's recent State of the Union address talked about how families were being charged more to be seated together. So, you know, that's just, it, it's so frustrating if you're a family and then you're having to pay for seat assignments and you can't get them together. And like I I hear you, <laughs> there's times where I definitely didn't want to sit with my kids when they were little terrors, but they're older now, so it's okay. I'm unfortunately normally the middle one between my husband and my big husband and my big son. So, um, but what's nice is that United Airlines is going to have a new seat map that will actually help families. It will be for children who are um, 12 and under, but it will be free of charge for their basic economy fares. I really do hope that other airlines follow suit because it's, uh, it is a nightmare and it's uh, a huge deterrent for families when they have to, you know, go online and figure out and trying to get things and it costs them money to, to sit with their family altogether. Yeah, it'll be interesting, and I'm sure a lot of families will be taking full advantage of that new system. A couple of stories out of Europe, if people are mm -hmm. planning any European travel, and in one case, a trail service instead of short-haul flights, and Lufthansa cancelling a lot of flights. Yeah, so one good news, one kind of bad news story. Um, KLM, there's been a lot of talk in the EU about uh, reducing the number of flights, you know, there's so many low cost carriers there that do, you know, super, super cheap flights between places that are easily uh, done by train. And they're really kind of putting an effort to reduce the number of short haul flights. And KLM has actually just announced that they're going to be expanding a program that they've had where they're combining and they're actually buying rail seats on um, certain trains that will match up with their flights between Amsterdam and Brussels. And it will start on March the 26th, which is right in time for the start of really high season to Europe. But they did a test pilot uh, project of this last summer, and it worked really, really well. And it reduced the number of flights, flights that they did between Amsterdam and Brussels from uh, four flights a day to two. So uh, I think that a, a lot of European airlines may start to do this where you'll actually buy uh, air slash rail ticket between certain points. So that's uh, look for that coming. And then Lufthansa, kind of a uh, rough story, just shows you um, the labor shortages are real in tourism and they are, they're, they're massive. They were last year in, in Europe. We saw that how many flights were affected. Lufthansa's already, they made this great schedule for summer 2023. It came out a few months ago and they've dropped 34,000 flights from that original schedule. Yeesh. That is 
massive. Um, and I don't think that's the last of it. They, they did say that there will be more cancellations throughout their uh, Lufthansa subsidiary lines, which are Swiss and Euro wings. Um, so we'll let you know if, if that happens. But um, they're trying to do this soon because it's really going to affect a lot of people already have their summer plans booked. I know I do. And so um, it's some people may be affected. You want time to be able to change your flights. Yeah, let's uh, do one more story before we get to the deals, because I I have to know more about this idea of flying taxis. Oh, no, this is so unbelievable. (laughs) I love this. So I remember back in 2017 when Dubai test flew these driverless vehicles. They call them autonomous air taxis, and they're touted as the world's first flying taxi service. But they are planning to actually launch aerial taxi operations by 2026. That seems so soon to me. Um, the, the prototype models were actually created by the Dubai Roads and Transport Authority. And they've caught, instead of airports, they've got vertiports. And that will encompass a whole range of different facilities that will um, be the the takeoff and the landing zones, the passenger waiting areas, the security protocols, and then the electric charging stations. But it's coming I mean, I I know that there was this recall on, I think it was some Tesla models where the drivers, you know, the driverless stuff. I'd be scared to do it in the air with no, you know, self-flying taxi, you know, no, no driver. But who knows? It's a reason to put Dubai on your agenda after 2026 when this launches, because I think it would be cool to try. It's fully the Jetsons, right, for those is. who know. Yeah, I think it would be fun to try. I don't want to go first, though. No, I'm me neither. wait and see how that goes. <laughs> I agree, but it's so cool that it's coming. All right, let's get to the deals. What do you have for us today? Um, I wanted to put uh, Cheapy Cheapy Alaska, um, some 4.99 sailings. So seven-night Alaska cruises that are sailing round trip from Vancouver, and there are various dates that this is available between June the 18th and September the 17th, and prices start at 4.99, taxes of 3.29. Still, a lot of people, Jill, wanting hot spots. There's not a lot left. Obviously, we're right in Reading Week and University Reading Week right now, so it's very busy in all of the hot spots. A lot of um, flights were actually canceled by certain tour operators. So we're not seeing a lot. Um, What I am seeing is a few little pockets of deals after spring break. So March the 28th to Ixtapa, Mexico. Airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. It does include a $200 resort credit, and it's $1,199 taxes of $596. The next one I've got is a 10-night self-guided uh, driving tour of Ireland. This is so fun. It was not available last year. They had a huge uh, shortage of cars, so um, it was not available at all. I think this will sell pretty quickly. It's April the 9th through until June 14th at this rate. It's airfare, the 10-night accommodation, breakfast every day, and a car, and it's twenty ninety nine taxes of six eighty nine. Do we have time for the last one? Sure. Okay, the last one is a brand new date for a long stay um, to the Costa del Sol region of southern Spain. We had to add dates um, because the last supplier, they ran out, but October the 18th. So this is coming up for fall. When the weather starts to turn, if you are a snowbird, this is a great deal. It's airfare, 20 nights in a um, suite with kitchenette and transfers, and it's from 1589 for almost three weeks, including the air. And uh, taxes nasty to Europe, 840. 
Um, but it's all the information is available online if people didn't get that at travelbestbets.com. All right. Sounds good. Claire, thank you so much and uh, a speedy recovery from the <laughs> dental surgery. And we will talk thanks. to you again soon. Oh, thanks, Jill. Talk to you next week. As I mentioned earlier, the Auditor General for the City of Vancouver has released a performance audit report. And this report is on the topic of office furniture purchases. And Auditor General Mike McDonnell joins us on the phone now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. What specifically were you looking at for this audit? Well, you'll appreciate from uh, my very first day of being appointed Auditor General, uh, I received a number of suggestions from a variety of of, uh, people asking that I look at the city's purchases of uh, chairs in particular. I looked at uh, chairs as as part of the the office furnishings that the city itself uh, was buying uh, in a a period going from uh, January 1st of of 2020 uh, until uh, June 30th of uh, 2022. And were you looking specifically then at what was spent? We know that the city, and according to this, the city spent about $5.96 million, so almost $6 million during that 30-month period uh, to purchase, repair, and install office furniture. Were you looking specifically at how the money was spent or looking more at whether or not the purchases made were actually necessary? Uh, my my objective in this audit was to ensure that the purchases that were made were done with regard to best value. Um, other decisions with respect to whether purchases should be made or not uh, were outside of the scope of this particular examination, um, but it is on my audit plan for next year. Okay, and, and so I know that this audit has a number of recommendations as well, and that it found that the city, with a few exceptions, made purchases for looking at things like best value that were all within the, the city policies. But I noted that, or I saw that it noted there were also some exceptions. So what exceptions did you find? Well, I think maybe we'll start with, you know, the... The positive finding that, in fact, we did find that purchases were made with with regard for best value. There was a process in place to ensure that the chairs or or other furnishings that were being purchased uh, would provide the city with the best value over the life of of the asset. You know, in these cases, these things last for a decade or more. And so, you know, the lowest or, or cheapest uh, off the bat might not necessarily be the best value in the long term. You look at what kind of warranties might be in place. You look at what the costs of repair might be over the years. Uh, you, you would look at uh, how it fits with other furnishings that are already in place. Um, so we found, generally speaking, that there was very good documentation supporting that the city, in fact, did go out of its way to to ensure best value. However, we did find shortcomings, as as you note, and uh, probably the, the the number one thing was was that you know the process used to to find vendors uh, probably could have been better. Um, it was a very long uh, document that they were looking at, 78 odd pages, but um, there were only 12 business days allowed to to respond to this uh, request for quotations, which is was really far too short. Um, it's far too short just to think in a practical sense, but it also isn't consistent with the city's obligations under international trade agreements and interprovincial trade agreements um, to provide adequate time for potential vendors to assess whether they would want to, to do business with the city. And that's a really important process to ensure that the city does get best value for any sort of purchase. 
Right. So so what was given to the potential vendors, like you said, it was this pretty big document. And 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 was it unreasonable then to think that uh, companies that that vendors of furniture would even have the time uh, to do to be able to give uh, an educated response? Well, there were some responses that came back, but we'll never know if there could have been others. And, and really, that's what we're driving at is to make sure that the city makes every effort to ensure that anybody or any supplier um, that, that can provide good service has the opportunity to, to do business with the city and, and ensure that it gets, uh, gets best value in, in the process. We also found that, you know, while there was documentation, generally speaking, uh, in some instances, the documentation had not been retained. And so we can't look at what wasn't wasn't there for us to see. And so that, you know, in all cases, the city should retain documentation of the processes that it goes through to ensure best value so that when auditors like me come along and look for it, um, that it can hold it out and say, here, here's what we've done. So when you say there wasn't documentation, is that they, they didn't keep the receipts or what was missing? Um, in one instance, we found that they didn't have the documentation to support having made the, the right choice of, of a particular piece of, of furniture. Um, and, it, and most of the time they did, but in this particular instance, they didn't. And so that inconsistency, um, you know, is, is something that, that shouldn't be there. there. There always should be supporting documentation behind uh, why a particular item, whether it be a chair or a desk or anything else that's part of office furnishings, uh, was in fact the best one for the city to choose. Do you recall or do you know what kind of piece of furniture we're talking about or that was about? Uh, in this particular instance, it, it was related to uh, to chairs and desks together. And uh, uh, so, yes, that that, cause that was that was part of the office furnishings that were purchased during the period. Um, the the number as well that, that came in, and I know the previous mayor, Kennedy Stewart, was asked about this several times. Mm-hmm. It had to do with that delivery of Herman Miller chairs that came to the parking lot at City Hall. And I know there's a line in the audit as well that, that references 550 task chairs for a price tag of $375,959. Um, mm-hmm. And I know there were chairs of varying uh, degrees of varying, varying expenses. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how does the finding or what was the finding around spending that amount for 550 chairs? Well, that works out to an average of of $684 a chair, uh, which was uh, deemed to be the the, the chair that provided best value. Uh, So best value, you know, also looks at ergonomics. So if you have a chair that people of different shapes and sizes can all use as opposed to having to buy a specific chair for for a small person versus a specific chair for for a taller person. Um, You know, that that plays into it as well. And so, you know, there might be, say, up to, say, 30 different kinds of chairs that could be bought. And uh, the city goes through a a process to determine which ones are actually the ones that they would like uh, potential suppliers to, to provide quotes on. And you mentioned as well, and I think this is mentioned in the report, that but part of the scope was also about the chairs, um, that uh, the purchasing of chairs and also repairing. Is there anything that compels the city to fix or to repair furniture or to repurpose furniture uh, when it's deemed maybe it's no longer appropriate or maybe there was a renovation and it doesn't fit in anymore? Is there anything there that kind of protects furniture that, that's fine or could be fixed to keep it? 
Well, there's a couple of things to look at in that, and, and part of the initial purchasing decision is looking at what kind of warranty is provided. So uh, an asset that has a longer warranty uh, would cost the city less in, in the event of, of breakage or, or damage um, over, over a longer period of time. Um, and and that, that overall price tag did include a component of furniture repairs. I'm sorry, I don't have the figure in front of me as to what that relative proportion was. Um, but the city does make an assessment on a, on a case-by-case basis whether something is worth trying to repair or whether it's it's not worthwhile. Right. Okay. And and that, I think that that kind of there are questions about that because of when we've seen renovations and it seems like when there is a renovation that that, that just seems to automatically prompt all new furniture when I think anybody if you've done a home renovation or a, an office renovation uh, you do try and find cost savings or see if you can reuse things or if you really need to replace everything. No, you're you're absolutely right, and uh, that is why I want to look at sort of the, the the larger issue of you know the city's work around space planning, how it's responded to uh, the pandemic, and and you know we have now have a different expectation in terms of hybrid work for a number of employees, how that plays in, uh, and what decisions are made in relation to that in terms of furniture replacement or or, uh, or repair or or reuse. So, for instance, in my office here, it's a brand new place, but um, Pretty much all the furnishings are secondhand because we could make do with what was already available in city stores. Um, I, I do note during the audit period, while there were 550 chairs purchased, I think there were about 590 new employees. So um, it, it, it sounds that you know, there, there is some potential correspondence there. Right. Okay. And does it get into, or did it get into if somebody, because like you, you said, this was happening during the pandemic and a lot of people saw hybrid working models or they were working from home. Does this, does this bring into to effect that somebody might have a chair at city hall or at a city hall office, but then do they also then have the same furnishings if they're also working part of the time from home? Uh, uh, furnishings at home are generally not provided to staff, is my understanding. But further information on that, you'd really need to to ask the city. That wasn't really the scope of, of this particular piece of work. Uh, the audit makes several recommendations, uh, and uh, looking at them, are there ones that stick out to you? Or as far I know, you mentioned the trade agreements and addressing mm-hmm. trade agreement obligations and uh, other recommendations that deal with uh, the real estate and facilities management section. Are there any of these recommendations that you'd say are, are top of the list or things that need to be addressed immediately? Well, I think, uh, you know, the city needs to be clear when it is putting out solicitations. Is it intending to to seek expressions of interest from potential suppliers or is it seeking to actually do business with a potential supplier? And that's what differentiates a binding from a non-binding uh, procurement. As I, sorry, we're getting into some technical language here and I apologize for that. That's okay. But, uh, <laughs> but it is kind of important that um, that those what, what you're looking for is, is clearly defined up front. And there was some ambiguity in, in the city's processes that we've recommended that they address uh, right away in, in updating their, their procurement strategy. And uh, I think the other piece that, that would, be, would be really useful is um, when there are new items of furnishing that's come along, um, that those be included in, in some sort of an assessment rather than just tacked on to an existing agreement. Um, and the other thing is, uh, over time, uh, qualities of particular furnishings might change, the city's needs might change, so the city should update its assessments of whether uh, a particular item or furniture continues to provide best value. It might have been great 10 or 12 years ago, but what about today? 
All right. Uh, interesting findings in this report. Uh, Mike, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and for talking us through the audit. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me today, Jill. Take care.